got two, two kids now. It always feels weird saying kids. I'm going to go home to the kids. They were a bit interesting this morning. Thomas is apologising. <laughs> he's, no, he's in the best mood ever, as four-year-olds can be. Do I have to pay him five dollars now? Is that how it works? <laughs> yeah, the price has gone up. Is that right, boys? Did you hear that? The price has gone up. If he mentions it. <laughs> Don't try and stitch me up, mate. I'll get you back. Awesome. Well, I hope you're doing well. You have to forgive me today if I uh, am a little bit haphazard as well. I had a uh, I had another wisdom tooth out this week, and it's been playing my head. So, uh, actually, it's weird. Like, so the dentist was pulling it out, and he's like, "You've got two more to go, and I've pulled out two, and you said you had two previous, so you had six wisdom teeth." And I'm like, "Yeah, I've got six. All my sisters have six wisdom teeth as well, so." Maybe that makes us really wise, but it also gives us all sorts of issues going to the dentist and getting them all ripped out. It's not been pleasant. It's not what it's cracked up to be. Well, I think we'll get straight into it. I have a little bit of a different process that I'm going to follow this morning, but I just want to pray um, and ask that God would speak to us through his word um, and through me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to come in this place and worship you freely, to come um, and experience community together, to encourage one another in our lives and hear from you and how you would help change us this morning, how you would uh, come in and speak to us, how would you, you would help us uh, live more purposeful, fulfilled lives, Lord. Would you come in and let us experience your love and your purpose and your will this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Right, so reading my Bible, I was going through some old notes and going through some old things that I'd written down and I went through um, this idea that I had written in my journal a few years ago, which was that the Bible gives us this really amazing ability to interact with heroes of the faith that we would otherwise not be able to interact with. So I was thinking like on a, in a sporting team, the Australian cricket team goes somewhere and they bring Steve Waugh with them as a person to coach them and mentor them. He's not a coach, but he's just there to give encouragement and give guidance. And in so many fields, work fields do that where they'll bring somebody in, in a work setting, they'll bring somebody from another industry who's had some success and they would act as a mentor. And I thought, how is it, how amazing is it that our faith is so set up that the, the Word of God is so many things in so many different ways, but it actually allows us to accept the mentorship from some heroes of the faith. And it allows us an insight into different stages of mentorship. So the one that we're going to be looking at today is between Timothy and Paul. Timothy, a young minister, and Paul mentoring him through that and it's interesting how we can dive into that it's almost like Paul's able to mentor us through that stage and I wanted to take us all through a passage of that today to see how we could apply that back so today I'm hoping will be really really practical give us some 
really easy things to focus on um, and uh, dive through. So I'm just going to start in Second uh, Timothy four. You have to forgive me. I think it's actually going to come up, so I don't have to fight through. But Second Timothy chapter four, from verse six. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The verse I want to focus on today, that I just want to take through because I think it gives a really clear delineation of a pattern that we can begin to follow, and it's in verse 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. This is coming from somebody who's got towards, obviously, the end of their journey, is towards is understanding that he's toward the end of his faith experience here on earth and about to be taken up into glory with the Lord. And I thought it's interesting if we want to advance in those same steps, if we want to be able to get to our life and say, the Lord is happy with me and we're about to receive the crown of righteousness in his presence and be called home with him. What do we, what can we take away from Paul's statement? And so I've got a really clear three things that I want to go through today with you. And that is to have fought, we must fight. To have raced, we must run. And to have kept the faith, we must be faithful. Let me say that again. To have fought, we must fight. To have raced, we must run. And to have kept the faith, we must be faithful. And so what I've done this morning is I've gone through and tried to find some key markers in Scripture that will allow us to go through each one of those points. Because I think it's really easy to look at that and, I mean, it's so dangerous in the Bible to take out one small verse and not test it with other areas of Scripture because you can pull your own things and you read something like, well, Paul fought and he just punched everybody's lights out when he disagreed with them and just add all the... That's not what he's saying, so I'd like to dive through that this morning and get into what he was trying to say. So if you want to, uh, if you do have your Bible, next, um, next piece of scripture that I want to refer to is, if we go through this um, really logically, is to, to start with the idea of fighting in scripture. And that's going to be in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Starting from verse 10, it's a l- little bit of a chunk of scripture here, but it's finally... Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. For me, I read that and I realise it's a twofold instruction when it comes to this idea of what the Bible would say would be appropriate fighting, as we can, uh, you know, as I sort of alluded to, it's not appropriate. <laughs> the Bible's not saying that we should physically fight people. In fact, the Bible never talks about fighting physically other people. If you look at the way that Jesus reacted to people, Jesus was a peacemaker. He was a peace bringer. Jesus was the original pacifist. So to have the dichotomy then of the idea of fighting and bringing peace together, how do we interact with that? And so my first one is we're never fighting people. The Bible is clear over and over again that we should be bringing peace to one another. And it can be complex. And I think it's generally, this first portion is generally, I think, something that we can look back in moments of immaturity or moments of learning. And so the big one for me that I wanted to bring up is that over the last, as I've grown up through my teenage years, I have always had a very um, large amount of passion for justice, uh, particularly social justice, things like advocating for refugees, um, has been the big one that I've always focused on. And there was a, a moment for me where I was down in Cronulla Mall and in Cronulla Mall there was a stand, well there were two stands actually, and one was the Australia White Party or the Australia First Party or something like that. And there was a man dressed in, uh, trying to dress as a caricature of a Muslim person. And directly across from them, out the front of the post office, was a, a another political stand with um, Scott Morrison. And I struggle with Scott Morrison. I try to like it. Just it's just my thing, and it's okay for like I try. And you'll see where I'm going. I'm trying not to make it too much about that. But the point that I'm trying to make with all of this is, I got really angry, and I got really angry at the man who was clearly trying to caricature Muslim people, bring them down and had a really offensive sign that he was holding up. And they were targeting people as they were walking past. And there was a Muslim shop owner literally behind him who was in there saying, mate, you can't be here. You're being offensive to my people. And they were giving it to this Muslim shop owner who has a shop, at, who's had a shop in Cronulla for 10 years. And I got really angry. And I stepped in into that situation and I was standing up for what I believe in. But there comes a point where I have the propensity to cross a line where I'm no longer fighting an ideology, I'm no longer fighting injustice, but I'm fighting another person. And it's something that I've always had to watch when I get really passionate in these situations, is to go, at what point is a line crossed where I'm not fighting an ideology that I think is evil, and I'm no longer fighting against injustice, but I'm actually attacking another human person. 
Because the context of Jesus is never attacking another human being. And Jesus would rebuke people, and Jesus would bring correction, but it was always to the ideology. It was always to the poor actions. It was never about another person. And I find it so easy to say and go, what an awful human being that person is. I catch myself all the time. What's the context of Jesus? Jesus loves that person. God created that person. And it's an interesting dichotomy for me because I, I am a, quite a passionate person and I do want to get in there and I want to go, you are an awful person. But Jesus is actually calling us higher than that. The idea of fighting is to become outside of that physical realm. The one that I always like to look back on is when we would play football, Dad would always say, play the ball. You don't play the man. Play the ball. You don't play the man. When there's a tackle to be made, when there's a... Um, a time to be tough. You're going at the ball. You're not trying to take out the other person. It's the easiest way to get the free kick against you. And I think it's so much, and I think it's so current today with social media and the political divide that we're in, that we play the man, not the ball. Yeah. And we can have political differences or we can have ideological differences. And sometimes they're just differences of opinion. And we've got to rest in that and go, you know what? This person has a different, uh, different perspective to me on politics or religion or whatever it might be at the time. It's okay for us to still be friends. It's okay for me to treat that person as a human being. But we're losing that. The divide is becoming greater and it's like, well, I don't associate with those people anymore. I think it's really sad. And so that's the first thing I believe we're called to. The second part of fighting is that we are fighting a spiritual battle. And in Ephesians, we get told to put on the full armour of God in a beautifully poetic, one of the most famous portions of Scripture. We get told to put on truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Truth, righteousness, good news, or the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. I think it's... I don't like to provide patterns to say, if you do this, everything will be fine. But the Bible does try to be really practical for us to say... If you are going through difficulty, if you are going through times of struggle, God is with you. And I think we've got through a context now of where we think when God says he's with us or God says, I'm sending you out, that we go, well, God's just going to handle it then. If you're sick, God's going to heal you. If you're going through a financially tough time, God's going to provide money for you. And I go, yes, he does that sometimes. Yes, he does that sometimes. But one of the mysteries of God, his ways are higher than our ways, is that he doesn't always. But what he does say is, I'll be with you, I'll provide a way out, I will provide tools for you to use. And here we have, when the enemy is after us, when things are going tough, 
when we are fighting a battle that just you ever in those moments where you go my work situation is just not making sense I'm doing a good job but people are hating me why is that I love these people we've got along because sometimes what is you know what you think makes sense and what you can see is not what's going on there's something going on there's something going on in the spiritual realm and it's something we have to accept as Christians and we're giving we're being given some tools here we know what the truth is we have access to the truth Jesus gives us the truth we know what who we are in him righteousness we have a pursuit to be like Christ that pursuit is called righteousness we have the gospel to bring to the world the good news to bring to the world we have faith which is the one way that you can impress God. You know, coming to church doesn't impress God by itself. Reading your Bible by itself doesn't impress God. The only thing that the Bible says God is impressed by is faith. Our salvation, we are saved. And then we have the Word of God, which is God's greatest revelation to humanity and His greatest format for communicating to us again for me this provides content context for us in dealing with sinfulness in our world sinfulness of others for me it provides an insight into the fact that jesus could stand up on a cross and be nailed to the cross and say father forgive them for they don't know what they're doing that maybe in somehow in our lives when people are doing wrong against us, we can go, Lord, I forgive those people. Would you help me forgive those people? They actually don't know what they're doing. People can be agents of darkness without understanding what they're doing. And it's a really difficult place to get to of going, why are you being so harsh? Why are you being like this? Why are you doing... Because I, I honestly don't think that for the most part, People are trying and out there out to get you. It's a pretty dark way to live your life to think that everybody's just out to get you, but it's easier to think that sometimes. But sometimes, a lot of the time, maybe there's something around the corner that the devil's trying to hold you back from. Maybe he just knows if I can get them to get angry at someone, then they'll miss out on what God has for them. If I can just make them snap. If I can just take that bit of hope away. He's scheming. This is why we're given these tools. And Jesus used these tools as well. In the desert. When he was tempted. Jesus used these tools. There's that in action. To afford the good fight, we must fight. But our fighting isn't physical. It's done in the spiritual. It's done with prayer. It's done with the word of God. It's done with our interactions with God. The more we need to fight, is the more we need to press into what God is telling us. Moving along. To have raced, we must run. So uh, Hebrews 12 here was where I looked at for the idea of running. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance for the race, uh, perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So, running in the Bible is a metaphor for life. Took me three years of Bible college to understand that metaphor. I'm sure that's groundbreaking for all of you. I do have my diploma, thank you. So, if the idea of running a race is a metaphor of our life, the action of running is the way that we play the game, right? It's the way that we live our lives. So, to have raced, you must run. And this is about how do we provide a framework for the way that we're called to live our lives as people running the direction that God has us for. Here I've broken this down into two parts again. I think there's two sections to this. The first one is about community for me. Is that in front of a great cloud of witnesses. You know, we're running this race on, a, on home soil. That's what the Bible's telling us. In a home crowd, in a home crowd setting. If you've been to a Sharks game on a Sunday afternoon and there's just this noise and everybody's supporting that. I, I, I honestly wonder what that feeling would be like to walk out to a stadium of 20, sometimes, you know, 100,000 people, hearing people chant for you and support you. You just feel pumped up every time. And that's what this great cloud of witnesses is is here, it's about encouraging. And even in, in a church context, in our community, we have the ability to encourage one, in, one another and spur each other on. That's, that's, the, like, uh, that's why I like the sporting metaphor, that's why I like the context, and I do a bit of reading on this, and this is, the idea of racing is that contest, that sporting contest. But Paul's never focusing on winning, He's always focused on how you play the game. And isn't that what makes a champion in sport as well? Isn't that why Roger Federer is so loved? He's not just a champion, he doesn't just win, but it's how he does it, you know? And for me, I look at, um, I know this is not gonna be a super popular truth, but one of my favorite athletes of all time is Leighton Hewitt. Not because of, you know, he fires up, but the guy, there's no quit in that guy. And if you ask any tennis player, Number one in the world, just before he retired, who would you not want to face in the first round? They would all say, Leighton Hewitt, because we know we're gonna play a seven hour match against the guy. Because he just, there's no quit in him. And that's what this is saying, is that there's gotta be no quit in you. That the, that the encouragement is supposed to stir something up inside of you that would encourage you to keep moving past those pain barriers. There's always a pain barrier in sport. There's always a point where you go, I've got nothing else to give. And there's been studies on it, but there's a called a second wind. And when you push through that pain barrier, you actually can give almost the same amount of effort again. They've done studies on this. It's just about having the mental fortitude to pass through the next stage. So the idea of running a good race though, 
This is in the second part of Hebrew. It's the second verse here. We're given some hints, which is fixing our eyes on Jesus. Yeah, he does that really well, kids. Kids do this really well. They find a hero, they find a mentor, and they want to be like him. I don't think we do that great as adults. It's not cool anymore to say that. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be Ricky Ponting in the backyard. And I batted like him, and I tried to learn how to pull and hook like him, and I realised I was awful at batting, so I wanted to bowl, but that's okay. But kids do that really well. My son, like, has Spider-Man and Batman, because there's something in them that he thinks is cool, that he thinks is good. We're told here in Hebrews to look to Jesus, to emulate Jesus in how we run a race. And I want to briefly take you to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know if we've got that one. Sorry, I'm throwing some curveballs here. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 in uh, verse 6 or verse 5. Would it be better? Should have the same attitude as the mind of Christ Jesus, who in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. There are three things that I think we can pull out of that that talk to Jesus' mindset on his time on earth. He came to serve, he came to be humble, and he came to be obedient. Service, humility, obedience. I think they're really, really key markers for any time we're doing anything. It's like, am I looking for an opportunity to serve? And so I think it's quite an easy mindset that we can all get into Especially with everything that's going on, it's like, what can I do to serve? I can bring something to help people who are less fortunate than me. I think it's I think it's an easy to find those opportunities really daily. How can I serve others? How can I serve others in our church community? What am I doing in church to serve the people that I'm in community with? Humility. It's not about us. It's not about you. Humility. Humility isn't, oh, well, is me, I'm terrible, I'm a nothing person. That's called false humility. Humility is, I'm confident in who I am, Jesus. And I'm here not for myself, I'm here for other people. They go hand in hand with servant, with servant one. And obedience. Jesus, who would be in the very nature of God, humbled himself to death, obedient to death on a cross. The King of Kings humbled himself to a criminal's death. I think it's so easy to just go, oh, I just don't deserve this. I just don't deserve it. Oh, God, why am I here? God, don't you have better things for me? Don't you want me to be better? Don't you like it? It's like, 
Sometimes it's like, yeah, but you've got to push through it. You know, Jesus had to push it. Jesus died on the cross, a criminal's death. Can we be obedient to God? And it doesn't mean we can't have a moment where we say, God, is this really it? But it's got to come with a, but not my will, your will be done. To race, we must run. Again, all I'm trying to do today is give some pretty key markers of so a way that you can go in your head and you can, and I guess in a, a sense, read your Bible and read a format and go, okay, this says this. I'm going to move to my next step. That's what I'm trying to show you today. So we have three points. And from there we go, and it's much easier to remember this way. And it's, I'm hoping it's ticking a couple of boxes in your head and it's easy to follow. kept the faith we must be faithful and I think it's easy because there's a lot of ways of defining faith or faithfulness I think and faithfulness I think there's a lot of things and dad even said it's interesting today in this day and age how everybody wants to give you a loyalty card everybody wants to have their loyalty program we want you to be faithful to our company we want you to come to us all the time so here's a little a little gravy on the side to get you to come back to us be faithful to be loyal I've always thought that loyal people don't need loyalty cards I don't think loyal people need that on the side I think you're loyal because you're loyal but here I think we can get all the faithfulness and we can pretty much agree that faithfulness is simply keeping up your side of the bargain faithfulness is about keeping your side of the bargain. In a marriage, being faithful to your partner is about you keeping up your side of the agreement that you've made. Right? So, if we say, okay, God, what's our side of the agreement? The scripture that I go to for that is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What then does the Lord require of me? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I think justice in our own lives is actually way more micro than the wider world scale. So acting justly does not mean that you're some sort of, always some sort of advocate for the needy, advocate for the poor. You don't have to be um, fighting for something all the time. I think justice can come really small in our micro day-to-day lives. How do you treat other people? Are you always trying to push your agenda first, no matter the cost? And I heard a really um, great businessmen say a lot of businesses think that they have to build big businesses by tearing down the other businesses. He said, if you look at New York City, if you look at it go, I want to build the biggest skyscraper, it doesn't mean you've got to knock down all the other skyscrapers. Just build the biggest one. It, 
And he's saying, don't always do it at somebody else's expense. Don't always forward yourself at somebody else's expense. Which I think is funny because it actually doesn't say that having drive or success or healthy ambition is a bad thing. It's saying the way you do that is really key. The way you put markers on yourself as a follower of Jesus is really important. Am I doing this at somebody else's expense? Mercy. It's about forgiving other people who sin against us. And I think that's been a repeat pattern in today's message. How do we cope when other people do the wrong thing to us? And I think it, there is a tension there because I think there's a tension of saying, hey, don't just be a pushover. Don't just let somebody walk over the top of you. But I think, for me, that tension is held in two places. One, is somebody sinning against you? Or two, is somebody bullying somebody or pushing somebody in need? And I think they're the two settings. I think that's the litmus test. Because I think the teaching in the Bible is pretty clear. If somebody's doing the wrong thing against you, and that's in a person-to-person setting, this is not saying that you shouldn't do... Uh, you shouldn't protect yourselves with reasonable things. I'm not saying to just lay down and cop it, but I'm saying from a person setting, from in an interpersonal relationship, if somebody does the wrong thing to you, we're supposed to have all the grace for it. You're supposed to be a reflection of Jesus. That's such a tough challenge. It's such a tough challenge, in fact, that it's ridiculous to think that we can do that on our own strength. Because I certainly can't. It's actually ridiculous to leave ourselves with the expectation that it is up to us to do it. And then to get upset with ourselves when we don't do it. The thing we should be getting upset by is I need to draw God in more. I need to accept His love and His grace for me more. Because it if you've received a lot of grace, you have a lot of grace to give. That's biblical. That's in here. And can I say, if it happens in a church setting, you know what the biggest killer of church community, communities is? It's offence. It's offence with one another. It's difficulty with one another. It happens every day in churches where we don't actually say, you know what, it's all right. That hurt, but that person's probably hurting. That was a silly thing to say. I'm going to chalk it up to a silly thing to say. Or I'm going to address it with them. The Bible says if you can graciously go and address an offence with another brother and win that brother, you have won a friend for life. Not just to go, yeah, well, that person's did me wrong, so they're out. Because that just causes havoc. Humility or humbly with your God. I wrote down, and I thought this was a really interesting frame, so I didn't change it, but I wrote down that the last point here is humility before God. And I go, that's not what that says. That's actually not what it says. It says walk humbly with your God. It doesn't say lay prone in front of God and be this humble servant. It doesn't say that. It says walk humbly with God. God. That for me 
paints a picture of us actively including God or being included in God in our day-to-day activity. That's what that picture paints for me, is how can we bring God along and hold his hand and walk with him? I thought, what an interesting strategy that, interesting strategy, an interesting frame of mind that me, as been a follower of God my entire life, I still have a propensity to fall back and go, oh, God's this big bad guy that wants me to fall humbly before him. Uh, for me, I don't know if you're doing that, but I do that. And I thought I left that in there for full transparency to go, my brain does that, and I have to catch myself and go, <laughs> the Bible doesn't even say it. I reinvented that in my own head. And I gotta go go back and go, what's God actually saying? God's actually saying, come on, let's do this together. Are you humble enough to include me in your life? That's what he's saying. Are you humble enough? to include me in your life? Are you humble enough to include me in your race? Walking with God, again, there's that same metaphor. It's the same metaphor as running the race. It's where that diploma of mine comes in. So I can tell the difference between walking and running in a metaphorical sense. Are you willing to include God in your life? In your mundane, everyday, Micro, not macro, small parts of your life. Do you have the humility to take his direction? I want to just go back to Second um, Timothy four as we close. Second Timothy four. Um, just with um, verse um, verse eight, if we can, please, mate. Now, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have longed for his appearing. Can we learn how to reverse engineer, putting ourselves in the best place to receive blessing from God and to receive reward from God. I think there's a really simple process for us to do that. And biblically, there's been a few times where it's been easy to sit there and go, well, the Bible says this. It's like, no, let's explore a little bit more of what the Bible's actually trying to say. Does fighting mean that I always got to stand up? No. Fighting means you need to understand what's going on and you need to do some hard work about it. What is my race? Does it mean that I just put blinkers on and go to the end? No, running your race is about how you live your life. Oh, is my faith just blindly accepting what happens to me? No, it's about trust. It's about humility before God. And then we receive our reward, the crown of righteousness. For me, whenever I see the word righteousness in the Bible, the thing that I think about is that for me, that word means included with God. Included with God. Every time you see it, it means that we have the ability to be in the presence of God. The crown of righteousness means you are marked with the ability to now be drawn to God through Jesus Christ through what Jesus 
has done for us. I hope that that made sense. I hope that you all got something out of that. I would like to close in prayer and then head back to prayer. God, thank you so much that you don't leave us to our own devices, that you sent your son, Jesus, that you sent your Holy Spirit to counsel us, and that you've given us your word to be life-giving and life-breathing and instructional and set apart for us. Would you help us to really actively interact with it, to do it well, and to do that with an open heart, 